Are you paying attention? Are you soil with good ears? We live in a world full of questions, but not all questions are created equal. For example, you might wonder about those first two questions, especially the second one. See, many questions are, well, they're, they're bad, just bad questions. They're inappropriate or inaccurate, unimportant, and there are, are a lot of bad questions in the world. But there are also good questions, questions that are appropriate, accurate, important, and thank God that there are some of those in this world too. And one of our biggest problems as human beings is this. We often ask bad questions. Consider children. The questions young children ask that make their parents cringe and deny any relation to said child, no matter the proximity of that child to them, nor how much they look like the adult. I don't know this child. When they ask someone, why are you so fat? Why do you smell so bad? Why is your house so messy? Kids, those are bad questions. You should not ask those. Those are bad questions to ask. Thankfully, adults don't do that, right? We would never ask the single adult, when are you going to get married? Or the young married couple, hey, when are you guys going to have kids? And we would certainly never ask a woman at the store whom we don't know, when is the baby due? Do I need to fill in the rest of that one? She's not pregnant. Those are bad questions to ask. You should not ask those questions. But there are questions we ask after ministry events too. A camp session, a conference, an evangelistic outreach. Uh, pastors often get asked, how many people got saved? Mm. How many conversions were there? Those are bad questions to ask. Now, they're not ill-intended questions. They're not inappropriate questions, but they are inaccurate questions, and we'll come back to that later in the sermon. And when we come to parables, here too, we often ask bad questions, or at least we don't ask the questions we should be asking. We tend to ask about the minutiae, the small details, and we want to assign meaning to all of them while we neglect to ask the bigger questions. Why did Jesus tell this parable in the first place? What was his main point? How did he want his listeners to respond? Now those, those are good questions to ask. It's like walking into an art gallery but looking at everything through a magnifying glass you miss the big picture, quite literally. Or in proverbial terms, we miss the forest for the trees. And the parable of the sower is no exception to that. While it is important to ask those big questions about all of Jesus' parables, this parable is particularly weighty due to its unique place in the Gospels. What's so unique about it? 
Well, of dozens of parables recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John essentially doesn't record parables. This is one of only three that are recorded in all three. In this one, you'll find it in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. It's the first parable in each gospel, and quite possibly the first parable that Jesus ever preached. And it represents a hinge in Jesus' ministry, a significant shift in his approach. It's one of the only parables that we're given an explanation for. It's often called the parable of parables. It's the parable that explains parables as a whole. The one parable of which Jesus says, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Pointing to the primacy of this parable as a sort of litmus test for understanding all of the parables. If you want to understand Jesus, if you want to understand his ministry and his message, then the parable of the sower is irreplaceable. It cries out figuratively and also literally, pay attention here. This is crucial. Kyle Snodgrass's extensive treatment of all the parables in that he says, this parable and its interpretation are important because they give the most extended treatment of the reception of God's word. That's why the bulletin cover for this series features the parable, and I fully expect that many of you at this point are flipping over to the front and looking to see if that's true. I hope you can figure out the imagery there. So about this main question we should be asking, I'm going to ask that you have your Bibles open or your phones open to Matthew 13, the text that Jake read very well for us. We won't read it through again, but your receptivity to the message will increase if you have it open and are able to follow along. Recall our primary goal. It's to answer three good and overlapping questions from the text itself. Why did Jesus tell this parable? What was his main point? How did he want his listeners to respond? And looking at the parable, Matthew 13, 3 through 8, we note that there are a number of details which we could become focused on. There is a farmer or sower, depending on your translation. There is seed, a path, birds, growing plants, rocky soil, thorns, good soil, an abundant crop. We could become focused on any one of those. For example, one commentator that I read in preparing for this sermon got so focused on the path and trying to assign fault, whose fault it was that the seed fell on the path in the first place, he never actually got to interpreting anything else in the parable. And by the end of his treatment, his interpretation was that this parable was primarily about our need to care for creation. Now that's a very valid truth. We do need to care for creation. Another sermon for another time. But that is not what the parable of the sower is talking about. It misses completely Jesus' point. If we jump to Jesus' explanation in verses 18 through, 30, or 18 through 23, excuse me, he identifies all but two of those details. The farmer and the crop remain unidentified. The seed is identified, the message of the kingdom. Mark says the word, Luke says the word of God. The seed 
couldn't possibly be more important. God's message of the kingdom, Jesus' favorite topic of conversation. You want to understand what Jesus has to say? We need to talk about the parable of the sower. In the parable, that seed never changes. It's the same seed that is sown or scattered in every soil. The soil, however, is different. And those soils are identified by Jesus as well. So progressively, we have seed that never even makes it into the soil. Seed that grows quickly, only to die quickly. Seed that grows healthy for some time and then gets choked out by the thorns. And finally, soil that produces an abundant crop. Each soil, Jesus tells us, represents a person who hears the message but with vastly differing results. Now, in one sense, there are four results here. But really, there are only two. There are dead plants, and there are plants that produce fruit in abundant harvest. Remember, we're trying to avoid getting bogged down in all the smaller details at the moment. We want to see the big picture. And that picture could be summarized like this. A farmer scattered seed. A lot of it died without ever producing fruit. But there was one kind of soil that produced abundantly. Now, if we consider that summary and are listening attentively, then we've got questions about this good soil. What made the difference? Why did it produce a crop when others did not? And what is the crop in the first place? As for the difference in the explanation, we note that all four soils heard the word of God. The seed is always the same, and it is always heard. That's important. It is not the mere act of hearing, then, that determines the differing results in the soils. Just because you've heard the message doesn't mean you've received the message. So, the good soil has to do with something else, then. Well, the good soil received the seed, but so did two soils in which the plant died without producing a crop. So, that's not it. It was able to grow deep roots, unlike the rocky soil, and it wasn't choked out by the weeds. It had room to grow, uh, but that third category didn't produce fruit either. And, and these are all relevant. There are real-life applications to those truths, but there's something else. There's something bigger, something that's staring us right in the face, something we miss by doing exactly what I just had you do. We considered the parable, but we skipped the setting that led to it. We jumped to the explanation, but moved right over verses 9 through 15. And it's what we often do when we read Scripture. We pick and choose. We don't see the big picture. And by doing so, we miss the forest for the trees. Remember that this parable represents a major shift in Jesus' ministry approach. The conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders has been intensifying. He has preached the message of the kingdom to them. They heard it. Most of them did not receive it. Much the opposite, their opposition of Jesus has now reached the level of an assassination plot. He's no longer teaching in the synagogues. 
His focus is solely on the multitudes out and about in homes and beside lakes and on hillsides. There he begins to teach many things in parables, verse 3. That's why the disciples ask in verse 10, why do you speak to the people in parables? Because it's new to them. They're eyewitnesses to this shift in Jesus' tone and technique. The key to the parable of the sower, and by extension to all the parables, occurs in verses 9 through 15. All three of the Gospels record Jesus ending the parable with this important phrase, He who has ears, let him hear. Now this may or may not be a reference to Ezekiel 3.27, which says, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Whoever will listen... Let him listen, and whoever will refuse, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Though it's not a word-for-word -word quotation, Jesus' words certainly mirror the principle there in Ezekiel 3. He who has ears, let him hear. He who will listen, let him listen. So that here in Ezekiel 3 and in Jesus' extended quote from Isaiah 6, responsibility falls squarely on the shoulders of the person to choose to hear or not to hear. A message is proclaimed. Can you hear it? Do you want to hear it? Or are you ignoring it? God leaves it to your choice. All three Gospels record that reference of Jesus to Isaiah 6, this key to understanding the parable. We should read the parable of the sower through the lens of Isaiah 6. So what was happening in Isaiah 6? Well, Isaiah was confronted by the overwhelming holiness of God at the beginning of that chapter. He was overwhelmed with despair, and then in his mercy, God saw to it that Isaiah was cleansed from his sin. So that when God asks, who will go for me, Isaiah can't wait to volunteer to demonstrate his gratitude. For those of you who were with us in the ABF hour, you might hear some similar veins in Vitaly's story. God has cleansed me. I can't wait to respond in gratitude to what he's done for me. That's Isaiah. And when Jesus references to his disciples, Isaiah 6, he's referencing specifically the message he gave Isaiah. You ready to go for me? Here's the message that you are to give. The people of Israel, by and large, have chosen to plug their ears and cover their eyes and darken their understanding. Now, they can hear the sound waves. They can see Isaiah's lips moving, and they have the intellectual capacity to understand the message so what's the problem? They've chosen their own way. They have closed their eyes. They refuse to see. So why is Jesus speaking in parables? Because this generation, like Isaiah's generation, has chosen willful blindness and will not understand. I didn't say cannot will not, is what this text says. Jesus had spoken plainly, no longer, 
Now, parables. But Jesus had just said, he who has ears, let him hear. He didn't say, you know what, none of you have ears to hear, so you'll never hear good riddance. And that's good news for us. Rather, Jesus clearly expected that there were, in fact, those who would hear, would perceive, would accept, would understand, who would be, in a word, good soil. We all have ears. If you're not sure, look around. As far as I can tell, everybody here has ears. But do we have ears that hear? Jesus' main point, are you listening? I don't mean, are you listening to me? I mean, that's Jesus' point. Are you listening? Do you have ears to hear? So let's backtrack. We still haven't answered the question, what is the crop? What is this abundant harvest? What does it mean to be good soil? And we could do what we often do, and there's legitimacy in this. We read into the text from other portions of Scripture. So if the seed produces a crop, well, that means that that crop also probably produces more seeds. So maybe the abundant crop is a lifestyle of evangelism. That's what identifies good soil. Or Jesus talks a great deal about fruitfulness in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Upper Room Discourse, and many other places in Scripture. So perhaps there are connections there. Yes. Or we recall from Sunday school that Galatians 5 tells us all about the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit, good harvest, fruit of the Spirit, there it must be. And that's not bad. Maybe that fruit is in mind. All of those things have legitimacy in the lifestyle of a Jesus follower, but they all have something else in common. They leapt right over the context of Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, and looked for connections elsewhere. It's always a bad idea to ignore the immediate context of any passage of Scripture so that you can look elsewhere for an explanation and insight first. This is such a big problem in the American church today that I want you to hear that again. It is always a bad idea to ignore the immediate context of any passage in order to look somewhere else for explanation and insight first. The rest of Scripture is really important. But if the idea is right there in the context, don't ignore it and go try to find it somewhere else. And it happens all too often. In this case, we're given an answer right in the immediate context. By proclamation and by demonstration, attentiveness. How do we identify good soil? Attentiveness. By proclamation. Jesus' final statement and reference to Isaiah 6 Proclaim this. What is the good soil? Well, it may include much more than this. It may, in fact, include an evangelistic lifestyle, the fruit of the Spirit, self-discipline, and more. But in the immediate context, it is attentiveness. Hearing, perceiving, understanding, accepting. Good soil is not identified by mere hearing, but rather by a focus on Jesus and what he has to say that goes far deeper, a focus that doesn't walk away 
when it is confused. It does not pick and choose in attentiveness that keeps leaning into Jesus, wanting to understand, wanting to perceive, wanting to know him. It is more than just hearing. All four soils heard the message. The rocky soil even received it with joy. Luke records that that soil believed for a while, but in the end, it died out. No fruit, no harvest. If good soil is characterized by attentiveness to Jesus and his message, then the rocky soil stopped paying attention. It didn't dig down deep into the kingdom and into its King Jesus. Its shallow attention to Jesus could not withstand hard times, could not withstand persecution. The plant that got choked out was clearly characterized by attentiveness that shifted, shifted from Jesus to the things of the world. But the good soil, the good soil was in it for the long haul. So much so that it matured and bore fruit in abundant harvest well beyond the normal yields experienced by farmers at that time. By demonstration. Look in the text. It's not just what Jesus says about the good soil. Look at the characters in the text and you'll see good soil. The disciples the ones who have been given the knowledge of the secrets of heaven, verse 11, who have and will be given more, verse 12, in abundance. In fact, notice the link between the abundance in verse 12 and the abundant crop in verse 8 a few verses earlier. It wasn't that the disciples fully understood. Rather, they were still there, still paying attention still leaning in, still wanting to know more, asking questions. Now, when we look at the disciples, they don't seem like people who have the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. They seem confused. Why are you doing this, Jesus? But they stick around. They ask their questions, good questions, Questions that showed that they wanted to understand and perceive. Think of Peter in John 6, answering Jesus when Jesus says, are you going to leave too? He doesn't say, it's okay, Lord, we understand. He says, where else would I go? Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's why we sang the song we sang this morning. Where else shall I go? You have the words of life. Kyle Snodgrass says it this way, when people responded to the message of the parables by joining themselves to Jesus and seeking further understanding, further revelation and explanation about the kingdom, it was given. To those whose hearing remained at a superficial, a superficial level, no further revelation was given. That's the main idea. What does Jesus want his listeners to do? Pay attention for the long haul. Lean in to understand and keep leaning in. We see this theme time and again in the Gospels. We think of Mary and Martha and we ask, well, who's the good soil? Well, Martha's the one that's busy. 
I mean, she's preparing a meal for Jesus. She's serving Jesus. Surely it's Martha that's the good soil. And Jesus says, no, it's Mary. Mary has chosen what's better. Well, what's Mary doing? She's not cooking. She's not cleaning. She's not helping. She's sitting on the floor looking at Jesus and soaking in every word he has to say. That's good soil. We often mistake busyness for good soil. Good soil is the soil that's attentive to Jesus. Or we think of Zacchaeus. I don't know if he was a wee little man like we sing in Sunday school. But he climbed a tree because he had to hear what Jesus had to say. He had to give full attentiveness to Christ. And Jesus commends him for it. Salvation has come to this house today. Now there's more going on in the story of Zacchaeus. But first and foremost, Zacchaeus was fully attentive. He wanted to know. Do you want to know? Time and again, Jesus praises the ones who are paying attention and often at great cost to themselves. They are not concerned about how they appear to others. What do you think of me? I'm sorry, that's not even on my radar screen. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to Jesus. Oh, you don't, you don't like me? I, I mean, I'd like you to like me, but I, I'm focused on Jesus. I'm attentive to him. That's who I'm living for. Those are the people that Jesus praises. People who listen with rapt attention. Am I doing that? Are you doing that? So here are two more good questions associated. Questions we should be asking. How do I know if in fact I have ears to hear? Well, are you in the word of God regularly? Privately and corporately? Not as a formality or a task but because you want to hear God and know Him. Is there a passion, however faltering, to hear from Him in His Word? When the values of the world contradict God, do you side with Him? Or do you kick Him to the side very quickly and join with the world? Does your hearing of His Word lead to change and increasing, though not yet perfect, obedience? Is there even a desire to be like Jesus, to obey him even as you still struggle to do so? Do you live differently because you are regularly encountering the word of God, listening to him? When is the last time you were convicted by the word and something in your life changed because of your encounter with the word of God? Now, if those things are true of you, great news, you are very likely good soil. Soil with good ears. You are attentive. If not, then you may need to consider whether in fact you're represented by one of the other soils. Soils with dead plants, if any. Soils that in practicality have closed their ears. Second, what's at stake in the answer to this question? Why does it matter if I'm attentive to Jesus? As Eliel preached to us last week from the latter half of this same chapter, there is a real danger of thinking that we are saved when in fact we are not. There are results of the gospel that demonstrate that it has in fact taken root and we are truly members of God's kingdom. Not habits and attitudes that earn salvation, but habits and attitudes that are evidence of it. So, consider the parable. How hard was it to identify the good soil in the long run? Think on that for a moment. 
Now, if you go early on, it's hard to tell. There's three different soils that all have plants. In fact, the rocky soil sounds like it might even look like the best one. I mean, it's growing quickly and with joy. Hmm. Looked like the better plant. The seed in the soil with the thorns is growing nicely too. But it doesn't take long before there are dead plants lying in those soils. And by the end of the parable, the seed in the good soil is bearing its first crop of fruit. So I ask you again, how hard was it to tell which one was the good soil at the end of the parable? Um, dead? Dead? Fruit. At least in the parable. Attentiveness? Is there fruit? Are you paying attention? Are you soil with good ears? It doesn't take a PhD in agriculture to tell the difference between dead and dying and alive and fruitful. According to the text, what's the difference? Uh, that difference is largely between long-term attentiveness to him and ignoring or abandoning him. What's at stake? Matthew says turning and being healed. Mark says forgiveness. Luke says belief and salvation. In summary, everything that matters is at stake here. Are you paying attention? Are you soil with good ears? If so, you're turning and you're being healed and receiving forgiveness. You're believing and receiving salvation. If not, you're not. So what about that question at the beginning of the sermon? How many got saved? How many conversions were there? Why is that a bad question, Pastor? Well, the parable is told first and foremost about attentiveness to Jesus, what separates the good soil from all the others. The only hint we're actually given to what the crop is in the immediate context. It is not told first and foremost to give us a guide to gospel receptivity. The first hearers didn't even know about the cross and the resurrection. The message of the kingdom for them didn't include those things yet. But now it does. And in both cases, before and after the cross and the resurrection, this much is the same. The kingdom has to do with ongoing attentiveness to Jesus. So if we take the parable seriously, then quick, even enthusiastic reception of the gospel is simply not enough to identify with certainty good soil. Sustained growth and development over the short run is not enough in and of itself to identify with accuracy the good soil. Those soils might be saved, but we don't know. So when I'm asked after a summer camp session at Camp Zion, how many kids got saved at Camp Zion? Maybe one of you have, has asked me that question. I'm not thinking of anybody here. But if so, you probably didn't like my answer. I don't know. It's not a really hopeful answer, is it? How many people got saved? I don't know. You don't know? Let's get a new youth pastor who knows. Well, I don't mean that meanly. Uh, oh, four kids professed faith in Jesus for the first time. Oh, so four got saved. Well, maybe. I hope so. I'm praying for that. I'm going to work on discipling them so that, so that, that we can know. But, but what I know right now is that four professed faith. Four heard the message and at least initially responded. And that's good news and I'm excited about it. Can you, I'll give you their names so you can pray for them. But I don't, I don't know if they got saved. I don't know if they were converted. I'm going to tell you about a summer in the mid-2000s where two teenagers, I was privileged to interact with them in a time when they first professed faith in Jesus. One of them 
Man, they looked enthusiastic. They were excited. There was change. There was passion and joy in them. And it looked good. Like, they're, man, they're, I think they're saved. And, and then there was this other person. I wasn't there when they first professed faith, but they showed up in our youth ministry pretty quickly. And they just were filled with doubt every Sunday night. What about this? What about that? What about evolution? How do I know the Bible is true? You might have looked at them and thought, I, I, I don't know, is, is that good soil? Well, how do we know? Well, it's been 17 years. Sorry, 18. I can do math. Really, I can. The first one, as far as I can tell, walked away from Jesus at the end of high school. Has, hasn't paid attention to Jesus since, as far as I know. Hurts to say that. They weren't saved. There's no long-term attentiveness to Jesus for over a decade now. The second one, the one with all the doubts, well, you don't have to answer out loud, but do you think that Drew Wickland is good soil? Yeah. Attentiveness to Christ. Oh, Drew looked early on like, baby, this is rocky soil. All these doubts, he's struggling. But today, oh, he's attentive to Jesus. And by the way, you might say a quick prayer for him. He's preaching across town at Grace Missionary Church today. That's good soil. So how many, how many of those two got saved that summer? I would have told you then. I don't know. Today I'd say one of them. I have no doubt. In the Gospel of Luke, the paragraph immediately following the parable of the sower ends with these sober words, Luke 8, 18. Therefore, consider how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. Consider how you listen. In other words, do you have ears that hear? Jesus makes clear that there are those who think they do, but they don't. They think they have, but even what they think they have, they will lose because they did not rightly consider how they listened. Could that be you? Odds are that there are at least a handful of us in the sanctuary this morning who think we are good soil, but we're not who risk having even what we think we have taken away from us. Do you come to church, ABF, Sunday school, Bible study, the sermon, your own reading of the word, assuming that you already know and understand all there is to know? Are you bored by the word of God because it's just all the same to you over and over? Do you, or do you encounter the word only to gain ammunition for arguments and debates, to justify yourself and your own opinions. If so, I say it with love, be warned. You may not have what you think you have. And you may lose even what you think you have. You may very well have ears that do not hear, eyes that do not see, even as you are confident that you hear and see just fine. On the other hand, do you come to church, ABF, Sunday school, Bible study, the sermon, your own reading of the word, to encounters with the word of God as a learner? 
Knowing that there is always more you need to know. There's always more to know about Jesus. Wanting to grow closer to God, to Jesus. Wanting to walk in step with the Spirit. Do you come because you know you need it and you always will? Are your ears and eyes open for more? Well, if so, I'll be encouraged. You sound like a disciple. You sound like good soil, a plant that is in the process of bearing much fruit and growing closer to God. Kyle Snodgrass, again, the kingdom is a kingdom of the word, and the parable is a parable about receiving that word. To be a disciple of the kingdom means hearing and remaining focused on the message of the kingdom in such a way that one is defined by it. My final questions. Are you defined by the message of the kingdom? Are you paying attention? Are you soil with good ears?